Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about an American tale, and we are talking about it with our great friend Dana Schwartz. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my wonderful, by my marvelous, by my phenomenal co-host, Sarah Marshall. An American Tale is a 1986 American animated musical adventure directed by Don Bluth and written by Judy Freudberg and Tony Geis from a story by David Kirshner. It is the story of Fievel Moskowitz and his family as they emigrate from Russia to the United States for freedom. However, Fievel gets lost and he must find a way to reunite with them. Dana Schwartz is a great friend of our show. We love Dana. She's been on this show a bunch of times. She's been on You're Wrong About a handful of times. She is a author. She is a historian. She's a journalist. And this is an interesting episode because typically the way that we cover movies almost 100% of the time is we invite someone on who we want to talk about and we say, what movie do you want to cover? Once in a great while, Sarah and I will be talking about a movie. We'll be like, oh, we should cover that movie. Who would make sense to cover that with? An American Tale is one of those movies that came up in conversation and talking about Don Bluth. We were like, we want to cover it. Who should we cover it with? Dana was the obvious choice. The last time we had around, we talked about Anastasia. So we talked about a Don Bluth movie. This is a Don Bluth movie. We were like, hmm, this makes sense. Maybe we should talk with Dana about this. Dana's a historian. Yes, we should talk with Dana about this because we're talking about moments in history. Dana is Jewish, and that is important in the context of the movie This, again, is an interesting episode because typically we're like, let's talk about a movie that gives you all these special feelings and let's talk about those feelings and let's unpack those. And we do that in this episode, but uh, I think we're a little more critical of the movie than we typically are because we're trying to understand some of the things that it does intentionally and it doesn't do. And so if An American Tale is unassailably your favorite movie and you want to hear people just talk gleefully about how great it is, this might not be that episode. We do talk about things that work, of course, but then we talk about a bunch of other things that we are trying to understand better. And also it's interesting in that I grew up always kind of knowing what an American tale was about and knowing that it was portraying this family that felt like a stand-in for a Jewish family. And so I come into this episode taking issue with something that Siskel and Ebert said about it. And then Dana takes Siskel and Ebert's position uh, and agrees with their position. And we talk it out. And we rarely in an episode have a situation where someone necessarily like changes their mind in a way, but we see that journey a bit. And I really enjoyed that we got to do that. And it just makes sense that we got to do it with Dana because she is so great. And uh, we try to create a space for thinking new thoughts. And that conversation has a lot to do with anti-Semitism, both overt and uh, structural. And so this whole conversation will touch on that a lot. That could be a trigger point for a lot of people, quite understandably, especially as we are facing this moment where overt and sort of proud anti-Semitism seems to be making a, a grand comeback, not that it ever goes far away. Anyway, These are all the things we talk about in this episode. I just wanted to give you a heads up that it might feel a little different format wise. And since this episode is about identifying positions and not leaving them to be ambiguous because that can potentially be dangerous, uh, fuck anti-Semitism. And you know what? While we're at it, don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Find us on Instagram, find us on Blue Sky, find us on Twitter for the time being, though it's becoming uh, terrible and unusable. Find us on TikTok. I'm making little 
kind of video vignettes. You Are Good is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We have an ad in today's episode, though we just rarely, if ever, do ads. At this point, we experimented a little bit. It just didn't make any sense uh, to do all the time. Uh, So you make the show possible. It is people who support the show on Apple and uh, with Patreon, and you get bonus episodes in return. We have an upcoming bonus episode on Girl. Girls just want to have fun. Very fun conversation with our friend Maris Kreisman. That's what we do over there. We'd love for you to support if you're not supporting already. And we appreciate you if you're supporting now. And if you're not able to do that now, totally understood. Totally get it. We don't always have it all the time. We can't always throw it around at our favorite podcast. So if you're not able to do that, support us just by uh, letting people know you like this show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's do an ad and then let's jump into the show. How about that? Indulge the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's extraordinary jigsaw puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. With a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly. Thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available, start small and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. 40,000 pieces. I think you can start smaller and work your way up. All right, let's join Fival and company. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Jessica Steed. What if everyone's name middle name was Jessica, like Sarah Jessica Parker? Being friends with you this week, it is. <laughs> Alex Jessica Steed, how are you? I'm doing all right. I um I've heard this rumor about America that it's a catless country, mm. and I am excited to go and see. Oh, I have heard it as well. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm excited to see if it's it's true, like everybody says. How are you doing? I'm doing so amazing. I have heard that in America, no cap, the streets are paved with cheese. <laughs> I, you know what my favorite ice cream is? Is Swiss cheese ice cream. Is that a real ice cream? No. Well, it probably is. It's, Jenny's <laughs> probably has it. But Dom DeLuise oh, asks Fifa yeah. what his favorite ice cream is. And he says, it's Swiss cheese ice cream. And Dom is like, me too. And see, that was my Dom DeLuise impression. <laughs> this movie has beautiful jokes. And I think that it's so interesting to think about an era when Dom DeLuise was the king of children's entertainment. <laughs> Get Dom in this one. Well, uh, Sarah Marshall. Sarah Jessica Marshall. Sarah Jessica Marshall. Why are we blessed with the opportunity to talk about an American tale, the prequel to Fifle Goes West? Well, here, in all seriousness, here is what I think happened. And I might be wrong because I can't remember anything these days. But I think that we were like, let's do an American tale. And I was like, we are not doing it with anyone but a Jewish guest. And also, we should probably just do it with Dana, because Dana, you you hold our hands when we watch these horrible Bluth movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I feel like actually it's so nice to see yourself reflected on screen because not only am I from an Ashkenazi Jewish family that ran away from Eastern European, you know, pogroms in the shtetl and, and moved to America, but I am um, I am also a tiny mouse who loves eating cheese. <laughs> <laughs> this works so nicely because like we increasingly have worked into this place where we rarely pick the movies we have guests come on and they Mm -hmm. pick the movies but i'm really glad you know we've kind of had an ongoing dialogue and discourse with you dana about bluth movies and i'm glad that this one makes the most sense with regard to your own family history and background as well it's great it's great to have you here for that i also had no memory of this movie which is the crazy thing like i knew that i had watched it as a kid because i knew in the back of my head that the song like somewhere out there which had to have been the hugest radio hit in the (laughs) alex right late 80s yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) i want to hear like the the ice spice remix with like a rappers but i uh so even though i could not like actually remember seeing this movie it was somewhere in the deep recesses of my mind for sure it is one of those oh my god i can't wait to get it like (laughs) This has so many things happening in it, and I cannot wait to touch all of it. I don't want to wait <laughs> for the story of Five I don't know. There's a Tammany Hall subplot? Yes! Yeah, absolutely. With, like, <sighs> that requires to get it a, a childhood knowledge of corrupt politics in New York. <laughs> or maybe it teaches you for the first time about <laughs> yes. that. I mean, this movie is, like, good A-push uh, prep. I was about to say, this is a throwback to AP U.S. history. <laughs> My favorite class in high school, I think, of all of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Because we had a really great teacher, Corbett Clark, if you know, you know. What's up, Corbett? Who once iconically, after writing down something wrong on a whiteboard, went to erase it and said, oh, crumbs. <laughs> I loved him so much. Oh, crumbs. Oh, oh crumbs. crumbs. <laughs> Sarah Marshall, why don't you take us on a journey through the plot of this movie? And as things strike us that require commentary, which I imagine is like every 30 seconds in the movie, Mm -hmm. we'll chime in and aid you on your way. Yes, this film is, as you said to me over text, a rich text, different (laughs) kind of text. I'm just going to read you my notes for a bit, actually. Love that. Kind of a Fiddler sequel. Mm. Yeah. Mice's Human Altars, Great Mouse Detective, The Giant Mouse of Minsk. He was so big that he frightened all the cats. Uh, Bold. In America, there are no cats, the central premise of this film. Before we like super dive into the plot, can I just say how funny it is to like imagine that this movie was like the biggest middle finger to Disney because not only had (laughs) Bluth absconded with like all of their top animation talent, but a few months before they had released The Great Mouse Detective and it did. I love that movie, Me but too. it did not do well. Yeah. Like I, I stand it. I defend it. And this movie ate its lunch, as the kids say. It ate its lunch. And they talk about like the myth of the big mouse at some yeah. point. I was like, they're talking about Disney. <laughs> There's a dead child mouse named Mickey at one point. We're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> it's Totally. I love I love what the text is doing. <laughs> The the cool thing about this movie, so we start off, we have this beautiful overture in the beginning by James Horner, who did this incredible score. James Horner also did the uh, scoring for Titanic. So he knows how to get you to cry pretty economically. And then we see the Moskowitz family where a bunch of humans are having a great time and celebrating Hanukkah. And then we pan down 
to the Mouskowitz family who lives, I don't know, in their crawl space, I guess. And the mice are analogs for humans throughout this whole movie in both a really charming way and a way that makes you think about where this movie's priorities are, Alex, as you pointed out. Yeah, well, and I want to, even before we get into that, I, I want to address some, 30 years later, I want to address some of uh, Siskel and Ebert's criticism. Yes, great, <laughs> love it. 37 years, to be clear. Yes. They were upset that this movie didn't speak clearly about it being about the Jewish experience, the Jewish immigrant experience. And and I and I'm not one to be like, yes, it did or no, it didn't. But what more would it have had to have done? Well, I actually do. The the only mm-hmm. thing that I because I I agree, I be I feel like this is a very to me, a very overtly Jewish movie, but I'm a Jewish person watching it. I do feel like the the one thing they could have done is explicitly identify the Moskowitzes as Jewish where it's like these pogroms come but it's not (sighs) Mm -hmm. like it it, they don't say why you know it's coming for them and so if you don't know already like if you're a child you might not know and then even when they come to America they meet all these groups where it's like I'm Irish I'm German and they Mm -hmm. never say like and you're Jewish right 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 well there you go sure well and the and the what we do know like its priorities are certainly with the experience of people who come to the United States broadly under the duress of whatever menace is coming at them, sort of like where they're at. And as a result of it trying to be well-rounded, it becomes very interested in like the experience of white people who come to the country who would later, year, you know, decades later be sort of reclassified as white. But it, by way of it speaking sort of with regard to like everyone who's on the boat, I was like, we're really excluding a lot of experiences of people who are having a hard time in America. Okay, cool. We'll cover that later. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, like I, again, watching this as a kid, I was like, oh, great. A Jewish experience. Because it's like, to me, that was explicit. But I will say as an adult, I'm watching it back and being like, it feels like it pulls its punches a little bit in order mm-hmm. to appeal to a wider audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so, yes. I don't know, to me, it's such a bummer that you're also like, wow, I can't believe how Jewish this children's movie is. I never have really thought about like, yeah, they never say they're Jewish. Like, I don't think the word Jewish ever is in the movie, Mm. which it could be. The word Hanukkah, certainly like it's like, yeah, you're saying what they just say it then even more explicitly. That's it. And I'm not even I'm like, this is a good this movie is a good thing. We're getting Jewish representation. Mm -hmm. If I uh, one little, uh, you know, nickel is that I just would love them to say they're Jewish and to be like, that those attacks were racially and ethnically motivated. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's it feels like the cats and the mice are this metaphor that sort of like changes shape as you like portage it over to different parts of the movie. Because <laughs> in the opening, it's pretty clean. It's like there are Cossacks. The Cossacks have cats that are like drooling and snarling <laughs> and running through the snow. And that scene is harrowing because the family is celebrating Hanukkah. Everything's so nice. And it's like, we've just had the mother say, like, don't say cats. And then the cats attack and the Cossacks burn the house down and they have to leave Anatevka, basically. And it's like, I think a really strong scene dramatically. But it is also if you've seen it, you know, quite a few times and are grown up, it's kind of funny to think about trying to get cats to do anything, (laughs) especially like take part in war (laughs) because they're like the cats are like. They're following orders. Um, but anyway, so the cats here are like like very cleanly a metaphor for anti-Semitic violence and pogrom. 
and genocide. And then we get to the boat where we're taking a ship over to America, where we all sing about how there are no cats, which is a really fascinating song because even kids know that in America is in fact full of cats. Um, so what does it mean? Yeah. And it's an extremely catchy song. The setup every time is talking about how one of your parents was killed or disappeared. Or like your girlfriend, but like someone you love, crucially. <laughs> right. Very fun song about that. I was like, I just know the sing song part of the song. I don't think I listened too deeply before. <laughs> also, again, we're like, are cats animals or people? We don't right. know. Like, mice are people in this world. And we learn right. later that cats are also people. But the, the Cossack leaves it a little bit uh, ambiguous. Yes. And it's not as if the cats represent intolerance, because there's the Italian mouse who sings about, like, the mafia cats in Sicily or whatever. So it's not about <laughs> religiously oriented genocide with these cats. So you're like, okay, the cats represent oppression. All right, fine, whatever. And then kind of through the movie, we get it, they have to do more and more different stuff. And by the end of it, you're like, what are the cats? And what about the resolution to all this exactly? <laughs> yeah, I think that that is where, because like to me, I, I think regarding the like how explicitly are we talking about uh, Jewish experience here is like to me, it was extremely clear until we got on the boat. <laughs> yeah, because you're like, are all mice Jewish? And no, they're not. Yeah. And it's weird because then like on the Wikipedia page for this movie, it's like controversy and you're like, oh, what's the controversy? And it's that Art Spiegelman was like, hey, I invented the mice as Jews thing. Don't do that, which I don't know. I like Art Spiegelman. I'm sure he has a point, maybe. I think you're allowed to do it. I think mice are yeah. a, a fixture of, of children's literature. Mm -hmm. he, I mean, he's he's right. He also did do it and first. And I, I think like in a more important way with a capital I. Yeah. But also yeah. we're all allowed to be creative. We're all allowed to use mice the way we want. <laughs> and I don't think and, and for whatever it's worth, I don't think that mouse was directed at like seven year olds. Not most seven year olds. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was the way for them to receive the data. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so so what are the cats? It, it really shifts around a bit. And so we get into the ship sequence. They have herring in a barrel that Fievel is excited to see, which made me realize that phrases about fish in a barrel exist because that's where we used to keep fish yeah. <laughs> wild and Fievel I feel like is like maybe like a six-year-old in terms of emotional development Alex what do you how old would you say Fievel is I think so totally you see him crawling around in those floppy clothes he looks like a looks like a tiny little boy yeah six seven I don't know he wants adventure can't control his impulses <laughs> I do want to say this movie coming out when it came out, it came out in what, mid 80s, late 80s? 86, I think. Yeah. 86. I was presently going to Hebrew school when this movie came out and was around Feifel's age. So like as far as <laughs> as far as like movies hitting the zeitgeist at a particular time and place, like being this little boy mouse and being like, I understand what they're talking about the whole time was a delight. And to your point, Sarah, 
this song was everywhere for like 18 months. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because, of course, then there was a Linda Ronstadt version. Of course. Yeah. So Fievel, he's curious. He wants to seek adventure. He wants to see what's going on. He wants to see some fish. God damn it. And the part of this movie that when I watched it as an adult for the first time a few years ago that I like was really the almost the only thing I remembered from seeing it when I was a, a young kid because Dana, like you, it really like the song represents it in my memory for the most part is Fievel like getting up towards the decks and his father trying to get him to come back and him like hatching an idea and taking his hat, which his dad just gave him as a gift and flinging it up the stairs and saying, I'm getting my hat, Papa, because I think that as a small child, I felt... <laughs> very accused by that because that's exactly the kind of shithead stunt that I and many other kids that age love to pull where like I'm technically doing I'm not this is technically right actually I figured it out it's a loophole it's smart it's smart is what it is (laughs) yes it's using your head really and so he goes up to get his hat and then of course they're in a storm and things are so violent that he is swept away very dramatically to be honest, for me, the scene, I mean, that's harrowing. For me, the scene of him sort of getting into the the message in a, in a bottle and then floating off was very Ratatouille core. Maybe because it's like a rodent, <laughs> a rodent in a body of water floating away from his family. Yeah. And sometimes it do be like that. <laughs> Clearly, sometimes it do be like that. <laughs> So Fievel, the next person he encounters, thank God, is Christopher Plummer, Ugh. who's playing a French pigeon named <laughs> Henri, who is building the Statue of Liberty. And you know what? I believe he's building the Statue of Liberty. I, I don't can't think of who else might have done it. So Marie Chevalier is also represented by this pigeon, I guess. And we got a beautiful song, Never Say Never. This is this is maybe the skip to me. This is the skip. I like it. <laughs> what about like I don't this was in Wikipedia or whatever and like the synopsis of reviews, but someone was like, the movie is whatever. The movie is glum and sad and et cetera, et cetera. But come for Christopher Plummer's amazing singing voice. Oh. And they said that in like an 80s sincere way. <laughs> Some kids like to be sad, you know. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> Um, yeah, but Dana, please give us your review. What happens in this whole situation? Oh, I just think it's, uh, you know, if we're doing a never say never, give me, give me Bieber over this. It's just like, <laughs> it's, it's just not that good, compelling of a song, but he's just encouraging him to like find his family because America is the land of dreams. So, so much of this movie is Fievel and his family almost running into each other, but not. It's infuriating. And Papa Mouskowitz is like, well, my son is dead. And Fievel's sister is like, could we at least look for him a tiny little bit? And he's like, no. <laughs> and you're like, wow, harsh. The sister's like, I really think he's alive. And they're like, nope, probably not. Dad's w- willingness to just be like, we gotta move on. Like immediately is is rough to reconcile. <laughs> I always have, a, I have sort of a running joke in my with my family that the reason that you know in Wizard of Oz that it's Dorothy's antium and not her mom is how quick she gives up looking for her during the tornado. She's like, Dorothy, Dorothy. And the dad is like, get in. And she's like, okay, oh, well. I mean, he's a closer, but it's like, 
It's uh, it's an aunt. It's not her mom. <laughs> that's God. That's so true. The Wizard of Oz is really about being a girl surrounded by women who feel pretty ambivalent about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Fievel gets pumped up by Christopher Plummer. And then the second he gets to New York, he is immediately scammed by Warren T. Rat, who uh, traffics him and sells him to a sweat shop where he then escapes with the help of Tony, who is very connected to Newsies' racetrack Higgins, in my mind. Oh, yeah. And also a little bit of um, Timothy Mouse. I forget his middle initial in Dumbo. Like, just like a, a sort of like a talent agent type mouse. He's streetwise. Yeah. And he's like, you got to change your name to Philly. He's our artful Dodger. Oh, uh, yeah, he is. The one important thing that I've learned, a historical fun fact that I'm bringing to this there's a scene at Ellis Island when the Moskowitz family is going through, when we see like another family going through and their mm. name gets changed where they're like, uh, Shlomo. And they're like, Smith, got it. Actually, no one's name was changed at Ellis Island. That's oh. a myth that Jews have told ourselves because actually we changed our own names to deal with anti-Semitism and to help assimilate. And so then over mm -hmm. the generations, it was like they changed it at Ellis Island. But really, it's just... Um, they didn't, and we changed it to make life easier for ourselves in an anti-Semitic place. I was going to say, I do feel like if they were going to directly address Fievel being Jewish, that would have been a great time. Is like, why are you compelled to change your name? It's not just because like it's catchier. Like people have expectations, <laughs> people have baggage. We should talk about that. But yeah, that's a great. I had I did not know. Thank you. Yeah, I, I learned that a couple of years ago and it felt and it's one of those many moments where you're like, so school was just like a collection of things we kind of heard somewhere <laughs> and put in a book. <laughs> it's like, it must be true. My cousin said that. Sarah, do you know there's no actual evidence that I mean, I'm, I think you've talked about this probably mm. on your podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm mansplaining this to you that the vibrator thing is a total myth. Oh, my God. Yes, I love this fact. Well, I think that there's an episode of Maintenance Phase about this. Oh, gosh. Everyone go listen to that episode of Maintenance Phase. But I, Alex, do you know the vibrator thing? I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, Dana, please tell us briefly about the vibrator myth. I really love this one. So there's a classic thing that people love to say where they're like, did you know the vibrator was invented because doctors treated women for hysteria oh, yes. and they didn't know what female orgasms were. They called them paroxysms mm -hmm. and they just, isn't that crazy? People back <laughs> then were so silly and dumb and we're so much smarter yeah. now, but actually that's just not true. There's like actually no historical evidence, which like if this was happening in the Victorian era, there would be mm -hmm. just was sort of one of those facts that people like to believe because people's favorite historical myths are a slightly salacious and b uh imply that everyone in the past was dumb and that we are so much smarter now yes as opposed to history being an endless repeating cycle of health fads and <sighs> random reasons barring people from getting abortions yeah <laughs> There was also one going around on TikTok or something that was like, did you know that in Versailles in the 18th century, people would just piss and shit in the hallways? And it's like, why would they do that when they had chamber pots? Like what do and it's the same thing of like, did you know that until 1974, like nobody knew what an orgasm was and it's like Victorians knew what orgasms were and they were like Victorian men were probably as good at stimulating orgasm as men today so like calm down everybody <laughs> and also uh 
time periods where people thought that women could only conceive if they were achieving orgasm. So mm-hmm. they knew what it was. Yeah. Which sounds great. But then that also means that if you are in this time period, if you're sexually assaulted and it results in a pregnancy, then the authorities have grounds to take it less seriously because they're like, well, you had an orgasm. So the, the law and women have never been friends, I guess no. is my point here. What's an American tale about? I'm so glad that these are the asides we're going on. <laughs> Like, this is an important episode. (laughs) It is. We're talking about history with Dana. We're talking about historicity and the myths we create around it. And right, this idea of like that the past was simpler and that your name just got changed and that there wasn't that we like to, you know, hide from this more complicated dynamic of like, you know, that anti-Semitism is not just about your identity being under assault from outside, but you, you know, directing that at yourself as well out of necessity or learned shame. Yeah. So Philly meets a hot activist mouse named Bridget, who we see giving a speech in front of a sign that says cats unfair, which I really love. Yeah, She has a point. You know, I think that I need some art for my house that says cats unfair because it's like, what are the cats? Well, they're unfair. That's all we need to know. It's fine. I'm going to declare this to both of my cats at some point today, probably when they start begging for dinner like an hour early. Cats unfair. unfair. And I'll be like, I don't know what to do with that (laughs) feedback. And so basically... She's trying to get the mice to join together to fight the cats to actually have, you know, the safety and freedom in America that they have dreamed of. And I guess they basically just like decide to join forces with them. Alex, your favorite character, Honest John. Honest John. Honest John. Can you tell us about him? Oh, my God. Well, just like so much is being revealed by Honest John about New York politics, about just like the fact that he... When they're at a funeral, we see a dead mouse, like, lying on the table in this awesome kids movie. And then he... A lot of dead characters in this movie. A lot of dead characters. (laughs) It's the experience. An extreme amount of dead characters in a children's movie. (laughs) He opens his little notebook and writes the mouse's name next to Ghost Votes. Ghost... (laughs) And that's going to be your new band. (laughs) If you're doing a crime, you want to make sure it's clearly labeled. Write it down. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so Honest John is going to take on the powers that be, and so is our friend Gussie, voiced by Madeline Kahn, my hero, uh, when I was growing up. I love her. And she wants to have a wowie. Which is a what? A wowie. A wage gathering of mice for a weason. For a weason. (laughs) And then you say, oh, a rally. (laughs) I do love that, like, her whole thing is she's rich. Mm-hmm. The richest mouth in New York. And mouse. that's no longer protecting her from the cats, which is like a really interesting. Now there's a theme. But no, yeah, totally. She's like, they don't even know who's rich and poor. Like it's like <laughs> they're, they're coming after you no matter what. And that's a great lesson. It's real Jaguar eating your face party. <laughs> I never thought the cats would eat me. I'm rich. 
Right, right. I love that she just said it. That's like her like second line. Which I would love if they made the Jewish thing more explicit. That's yeah. very interesting because mm. that was like the crux. I mean, I'm coming in because I watched like Leopoldstadt or whatever, but that's like the crux of Jews in Vienna and in Austria. Mm. At the end of the you know 1800s, we were incredibly wealthy and well-connected and we had fully assimilated and we were wealthy, but that didn't protect us. And I think that right. that's like a very interesting cultural observation but that's not uh yeah well you know you know the thing that i'm struggling with about this like making it explicitly jewish is i hate that i have to acknowledge i don't hate i mean whatever like i hate that i have to acknowledge that like the reason that they didn't do that Mm-hmm. was because of the anti-Semitism in America in the 1980s, right? Like they wanted to make a movie that like showed the experience, but they were like, if we explicitly say they're Jewish, a lot of people are not going to come because they're like, this is this movie isn't for them. Yeah, right. Or because they just hate Jews and they're like, I hate Jews, quite simply. Right. And so again, for me, it's like because of sort of like my background in schooling, it was so obvious, but I do re- increasingly realize that like that is not obvious and things were missed as a result of that conversation. But I also know and I hate I know and hate that like some of the decisions about like who they were representing and how came into like who they believed wasn't going to come to the movie if they didn't. And ugh, I fucking hate it. Yeah. And that's America. Like someone, someone just said on Twitter, um, I can't believe having read Killers of the Flower Moon, which I love, mm. they can't believe that they're making it into a narrative film. And I'm like, I don't, unfortunately, I don't know how you get Americans to learn about the bad things that happen to Native people unless it's made into a film. Just knowing sort of all of these things about like where the message has to go and how you have to hide it in order to get mass audiences to engage it. But then as a result of hiding it, you mm-hmm. leave a lot of the actual lessons on the table about how this could apply to you. I mean, that's it. Exactly. It does. It feels like to get any version of it out, it has to be the most like watered down, like hero narrative version of it. But that by definition, you're going to always see yourself as the hero, even when Americans mm-hmm. need to learn that they're, you know, a bad person sometimes. Right. Or complicit yeah. in bad things. Yeah. Complicit in bad things. No one's, well, you know, we're not bad people. But we sure have potential um, <laughs> and, in all of our hearts. And um, I mean, weirdly and also inevitably, this makes me think about Schindler's List and how that is, in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, like a very good movie. And one that also I think is doing this interesting kind of calculus the entire time because the protagonist of Schindler's List is Liam Neeson. It's his mm-hmm. list. Yeah. And he's a, a Gentile who wears nice suits and looks great. And he goes out and he hangs out with Nazis. And what I think people forget about this movie and part of why I think it's good is that he starts out like really just kind of wanting to be a war profiteer. He's like, I don't have to pay Jews. Incredible. I'm going to start a munitions factory. And then by being buddies with Nazis, he progressively is like, what if my friends are bad? (laughs) And he's like pals with Ray Fiennes. And he's like, surely he's not that bad. And then he kind of listens to people who, you know, who he abuses or who have watched him shoot random people from his house and is like, what if my friend is not so great? And it's like about someone very reluctantly learning to come over uh, to the side of the oppressed. And then I think through... Having him as the protagonist, I think it buys the energy of the patients or the goodwill from the audience to then have these side characters, including Ben Kingsley, and then, you know, various smaller characters who were watching 
put into ghettos and then into concentration camps who we got to be with their POV briefly. And then we go back to Liam Neeson, daddy. I didn't realize until you just said all that. It's been so long since I've, I've seen that movie that that's the exact also the same arc and device that Swing Kids uses. Yeah, uh. less powerfully. Right, 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 right. But they're like, eh, we're not going to make this about Jews. We'll definitely make it about super cool Nazi youth <laughs> who but the have cool to come ones. to some realization. Yeah, who have to come to some realizations about their friend leaning in a little too hard. Right. Anywho. What's an American tale about? So, okay, so they cook up a plan. They have a wowie and they do uh, actually Fievel's idea, which is based on his dad's tales of the giant mouse of Minsk. And so we see them constructing this mouse and we're like, oh, my God, what order of scale is this mouse going to be on? <laughs> and then <laughs> Fievel figures out that Warren T. Rat, who has been getting protection from the mice because he's going to protect them from the cats, is a cat himself. What is this about a 4-4? I don't know. <laughs> His disguise isn't even good. <laughs> is it like an organized crime thing? <laughs> no. And you're also like, how is size work? It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, he, I guess on some level, he's pretending he's a man of the people when like he's not actually a man of the people. Mm. Like, I guess like that's happening a little. Yeah, the we have a really willy nilly metaphor about who and what represents what. It's a really, it's very situational. <laughs> yeah. And then we meet uh, someone who shows up really quite late in the movie, Tiger, voiced by Dom DeLuise, yeah. a vegetarian cat who sings Alex tell us about this musical number we stand tiger <laughs> yeah my god I love this song like I don't so so the the conceit of the song is he's finally met a cat who is not out to kill him and they sing a song about being friends it, it's a melting pot song they're talking about all of the possibility in America cats and mice can be friends Feifel says the cutest line on earth about like if you've got an itch attack I'll be there to scratch your back it's just adorable they're becoming friends and we learn that cats aren't evil by way of just being cats i guess it's their ideology and you're like well what does that mean <laughs> i think the issue with like mouse can do this right like spiegelman can yeah. do this because your audience mm -hmm. is grown-ups can can his hands grown-ups they can handle the metaphor you can't have a kids movie that ends with cats are evil because you are really setting up a situation in which kids torture cats or they are cats hmm. is that what you think they were trying to prevent that's interesting although the secret of nim kind of did that yeah well, no, I I don't think that they were intent. I I don't know. I just I'm just saying. I think like when you deal with a metaphor that has like a real life thing that is maybe even in your house, you're a kid and mm. you have a cat. You right. can't be like, you know what? Cats are secretly evil or overtly. I I don't know that it's a thing that they could really stick with though. I don't know that that is their rationale for how fluid they are about the cat metaphor. I don't know what they're going for. And then Tiger has a little outfit on. I don't. What do we do with that information? What do you think the deal is, Dana? I honestly think they just wanted, like, the. they thought it would be fun then to have a cat as a friend, and they were not thinking too hard about the metaphor, because they couldn't have been. Because also, though, remember how they were riding the cats before? The, the Cossacks? Right, right, right. So it's not even like cats are anti-Semitic. Yeah, true, true. I wonder how much of this 
yeah, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that they had this outlined. No, no, for sure not. Not in a not in a in a clear way. <laughs> but we we had a very strong start, and then you know. But I I do think it speaks to like the myth, uh, and I don't know what the realities were really because I'm I'm not extremely well versed in this time. But I do think it speaks to the myth of again the melting pot ideal, where it's like you're leaving your home and people who look like enemies in your home because of their affiliations and sort of like and and whatever they ended up doing, you're gonna come to the U.S. and they're gonna be here in a different series of circumstances sure you know like not everyone who looks like the enemy at home is ultimately going to be the enemy but again i don't know how i don't think that that's how deep they were necessarily going well and alex can you talk about the production situation because i think possibly everyone had just lost their minds by the end yeah i can i'm just going to read to you the wikipedia mm -hmm. thing because that's easier our friend Wiki. So wikipedia.org, our good friends over there say, the film was also plagued by union difficulties. Bluth had agreed to accept 6.5 million to get it produced, which later grew to 9 million at a time when Disney was spending around 12 million per film. He knew it would be difficult, but felt it was worth the sacrifice to work with Spielberg on a major project. The man who made 1941. <laughs> with, with, with the agreement of his employees, salaries were frozen for a year and a no, half. Oh, no. Unlike the former Blue Studios, the new Sullivan Blue Studios, and we have people who listen to the show who came out of that studio, so I'd be interested to hear what they have to say. But unlike the former Blue Studios, the new Sullivan Blue Studios were non-union. And when many workers attempted to withdraw from the union, it sparked a battle between Bluth and the union that continued through most of the production. It was mostly this struggle that later compelled Bluth to relocate to Ireland, which he felt offered a more supportive atmosphere. So this was plagued by like labor and union difficulties, right as a time that our little Irish friend is trying to get everyone to rally against the cats. Cats unfair. And he does a reverse immigration. He goes back to Ireland. Right. He's like, so wow. much for America. Peace out. <laughs> Based on his experience on this movie. <laughs> so you're like, who are the cats? I don't know. The people who made this movie are the cats as well. It, it does happen. That's astounding. It's truly astounding. It's like hard to believe how perfect that is. I was talking to someone the other day about how I feel like I'm too dumb to understand the strike, too dumb and too tired. And they were like, well, they just don't want to pay people enough and they want to give everyone's jobs to robots. And I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So they put together the giant mouse of Minsk and then it all happens. It's this beautiful, gigantic, like like a parade float kind of a deal with with firecrackers coming off of it. And I was like, how did they animate this thing? It looks rotoscoped almost. They animated it by not paying their workers. Oh, yeah. Perfect. You're like, oh, God, we got to get that mouse last second. Somebody did say in like the review of the animation they talked about it. And I would really be interested to learn more about the actual animation. But I think that this someone will correct me but i think it was mm -hmm. unique in that it was like one of the first like hand animated with the aid of computers oh interesting so i wonder if that's like what you're seeing when you felt like it, it looked rotoscoped sarah yeah or possibly i was just i could also i mean also the human beings in this look rotoscoped which seems like a possible cost cutting time cutting thing and then my understanding is that the finale of this movie and this is the part where you're just like what are you saying 
they chase all the cats onto a boat that is bound for Hong Kong and then are like, goodbye, cats. Not our problem. Not our cats. Good luck in Hong Kong. Yeah, they put them on, they put them on a greyhound to Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, well, OK, but what about the mice in Hong Kong? <laughs> Not our problem. They're in Hong Kong. <sighs> and uh, and then, of course, there's a fucking fire because Fievel can't catch a break. So he's separated from everybody and ends up in an orphanage. He's at his lowest. And then finally, miraculously, he is reunited with his family, which Dana, can you talk about the ending? They all ride on Tiger. They all agree to all of the friends that he made throughout the movie agree to get on Tiger, even though they're scared of most cats. This one's nice. And they're like, wow, can you believe we're riding a cat? And thank God, Fievel's sister has been insisting that he's alive. I also have to say, yeah. it's, it's almost like a little sad. Like it like is as a child, like wrenching, like how much the dad is trying to deny. It almost feels like he murdered five dollars. Like he, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no need to look for him. No need to do Where they're like. The insurance check is in the mail. <laughs> where they're like. I have a mouse friend named Fievel. He arrived the same day you did. And the dad is like, there was probably a lot of Fievels. And I know it's like him trying not to get his hopes up, but like, come on, my friend. Right? Like he denies it a lot. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's remarkable. <laughs> I, actually, Dana, I was so shocked that you just saying like clearly he's doing it because he's in denial or just want to like let his hopes up I, like that gives me some comfort because i saw him do it so many times i was like what why <laughs> he loved fievel so much well and i guess it's <laughs> fair to think that maybe he thought fievel drowned because he did get swept off a ship on yeah. a stormy sea yes but you know <laughs> give it a week <laughs> <laughs> Again, like he is mourning and he just like clear. I, I interpreted it as like he doesn't want to like reopen that wound. It was so painful. And yet to the point where people are like, yeah, I met a small mouse who washed ashore named Fievel. Like at that point, you're not even like going to try. Yeah. It's like, do you want to meet him? Nah. <laughs> I sure don't. Uh, I don't ever want to meet a Fievel again. Papa's very depressed. Did he have, I, when you watch old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, it's so just striking to realize, I don't know, like how little of the time we used to spend looking for people we have to spend now because so many people are so findable. Like it used to be so logistically difficult to the point where like most, at least in the first few episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, they would be like, a murder, a disappearance, a UFO type thing. And then they would be like, this lady met some guys who helped her 15 years ago. But where are they? Have you seen them? This guy's name was Tiny Feet. Do you know a Tiny Feet? And then they found him. They found Tiny Feet. So, Dana, you had no recollection of this movie. Sarah, do you remember this movie from your childhood? I mean, obviously, you remember the characters, maybe. But do you remember the arc? I remember the general story, but I really mainly remember the hat thing and then Fievel at his lowest being like, no, I'll never find my family. Never, never, never. Because it was like, as a kid, I think one of the saddest things I'd ever seen. Yes. Um, and it's still up there. And I don't know, as a kid, I was not overly drawn to movies where like characters felt this much sadness. But I think that this one, it feels like the characters are always active in their fates, if that makes sense. Like Fievel is like, 
he cannot catch a break, but he's having a lot of adventures. And I remember feeling fondly toward it and still do in that way. Yeah. Well, and his lesson is, and who knows how much of the father's issues were laid out to emphasize the never say never thing. But like Fievel's whole lesson is to like learn to have hope in the face of an explicitly and sometimes seemingly extremely hopeless situation. Mm. Yeah, you learned America's the land of hope, even though the thing that we've been taught about America, A, no cats, and uh, B, uh, streets paved with cheese, are both demonstrably false. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about that? Because it's so, I feel like this is in, you know, I took my first kind of U.S. history classes in like the year 2000 when it was still kind of you know, the idea that you had of immigration, that it was about believing that the streets were paid with gold in America. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just, well, didn't particularly believe anything and just couldn't go on living where they were rather than wanting riches over here. But I mean, yeah, what do you think of uh, (laughs) the two things we know about America being things that even a little kid knows are not true? I mean, I think... To me, that's why just for like a minute, like I just wish they could have like specified Mm. a little bit at the beginning, like what these Cossacks are. Like, why are these people running through your town and setting your house on fire? Like it, I think for a child, like it does leave the explanation unsaid. Like, I don't know if a kid would understand why random people in hats are setting your house on fire. Like, Hmm. I think Mm -hmm. they could have made it a smidge more explicit that like this is the land of religious freedom like if they had said like oh it's a land where anyone can come together and everyone's accepted for who they were like i almost think it's a missed opportunity because right america's an idea and it's a a one that has been sometimes poorly executed but in theory it's a really good idea that it's a place Mm -hmm. where everyone from any walk of life and any race and ethnicity and religion can come together and like try to do good. And that's an idea that like has been hijacked, but like I think fundamentally is worth fighting for. And I think that like Mm -hmm. children should maybe hear that promise. And the fact that Mm -hmm. it's sort Mm -hmm. of not turned into a joke, but like that promise is sort of dismissed pretty quickly, I think undermines like the the thesis of the movie a little bit. Mm -hmm. Does that, is there a way that I'm, that makes sense without me sounding like insanely cheesy? No, totally. Totally. I mean, it's a it's a very cheese oriented movie. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And I, I feel like it's also it's interesting to, you know, even to the point that a, a small child can think about it to differentiate the ideas of like, do we mean that America is a place where you can come and be safe or America is a place where you can come and succeed in a competitive environment where you're fundamentally on your own? Totally. Like, I think that there are no cats and it's paved with cheese as metaphors actually work pretty well because you get to fill in the blanks you know regardless I think it's, it's a funny way that you a funny and true way that you framed it at the end it's like you get to be here and like compete alone you know d- depending on where you're coming from like there just aren't a ton of options in America the promise that the myth has for you is that there is a chance to survive and maybe even thrive and like that's what these things are speaking to right and it's like you can maybe get rich in the casino right but if you come from a place where there's like no casino, then it's like, 
Well, at least there's a casino. <laughs> yeah, I guess all of the ways that we get this spoken to are pretty watered down. Like you can say whatever you want. Like that's one of the things. Mm-hmm. And it's implied about why that would be interesting to you. But we don't get it explicitly about why that's interesting to you. Like you're mm-hmm. coming from a place where you can't say whatever you want. Like, yeah, I could, I could absolutely see a lot of missed connections <laughs> in the telling of this movie. It sort of feels like the amount of historical research they did is like a an elementary school t- textbook like we're saying like they're relying on like all these like old tropes like oh yeah immigrants thought that the streets in america were paved with gold and like and then they came and their names were changed and there were a lot of immigrants working hard and tammany hall Mm -hmm. like it's sort of like a a quick like cliff notes version of history and then ending with like the statue of liberty is just like yeah and uh america it's sort of just they're, (laughs) they're getting through everything yeah, that immigrant experience was tough, but we got through it. And now things are good and it's going to be smooth sailing. Yeah, right. Yeah, we we missed the part where they get here and they're like cats by every other name. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like we can, right. They're escaping anti-Semitism. They come to America. They don't necessarily. And again, we don't know that they're escaping anti-Semitism because we don't speak to it explicitly. But we assume that they ran into a bunch of anti-Semitic forces while they were here. But we don't, you know, we don't get that in conversation. Well, right, because it's like it's for small children. But like at what age? do children learn about pogroms it, it'll vary per kid well and that's the thing so again like as a as a kid who saw this at the time you know there's what it's speaking about for, by way of the macro message and then there's just like being a little kid swimming around in your clothes constantly feeling disconnected from everything as i think fievel speaks to the just like the experience of being a child generally who like everyone around him is losing hope everyone around him is despairing in one way or another and he's like we should just make a big mouse and you're like yeah kids they know what's uh, up that's sweet yeah, and it is. I mean, I I think that kids' movies are places where adults can go to express the dreams that they don't allow themselves to sort of dream in in their normal lives. And that this mm. is like, well, what if we just all got together and like cooperated for about 12 hours? <laughs> and then like the cats are being sent to China. And like, what is the I mean, I don't know. I feel like I would have them sent to Antarctica? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it does feel a little weird to send them to China where it's like it, that almost is sort of the perfect unintentional metaphor for immigrants like, you know, should pushing the ladder away as they're done. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, we're we're here. We're set and uh you'll we'll deal with the next wave of immigrants with uh, racist vitriol when you get here. And the mice looked in the window and realized that they had become cats. Yeah, right? I don't yeah, and Alex you were pointing out naturally that like Our immigrants in this movie are like Jewish, Italian, Irish, German, like groups that struggled in the 19th century and then were, you know, some were successful enough to then be able to oppress the next waves of immigrants who came, who were often people of color. Yeah, we get we have a European immigrant story and they arrive to America and we don't see what people who brought here who were having a very tough time for hundreds of years were dealing with at that time as well. And again, I understand that the movie's job isn't necessarily to go into granular detail about the history, but if you are telling the America story <laughs> I feel like that's worth touching on in a deeper way. Yeah, they. Uh, this is a white immigrant story. And then at the end, the metaphor is they will make things harder for mice of color. <laughs> yeah. By sending cats off to them. Sarah, what did you expect to find in revisiting this movie? And what did you find? 
I expected to have a big old cry fest, and I surprised myself by not sobbing openly by watching this, but I still have time left in the day. And just, uh, I don't know, to just kind of have, I think of this movie as one where like the music works really well for me, like the opening moments of the kind of overture theme with the violin just like kind of gets me from the start. And I think of this as a movie that it's fun to talk about critically, but also that yeah, that like works in its simplicity, really, and that it's it's hard to get a lot of consistent material on history through it, maybe, you know, fairly, but that it's it's about like, just like these like powerful kind of primary color emotions. Mm. And that's maybe I think what I like best about it in the end. That's fantastic. D- Dana, d- did you have any uh, expectations going in? And where did you land with it? Yeah, I think... I went in hoping to like sort of be reminded about the, you know, nostalgia of seeing it. Like I was hoping to get more of like a big nostalgic moment and I kind of didn't as much like the songs hit me, but everything else I was like, oh, did I like, I clearly hadn't paid attention to this movie as a kid, but also it wasn't one of those movies that was like in rotation for me. You know, when I was a kid, there were certain Mm -hmm. VHSs that I just watched over and over again. And this just wasn't one of them. I will say I wanted to like it more. <laughs> I liked it, but I didn't like, I wasn't like, oh, this is like an animated masterpiece. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought it was charming. I thought it was sweet. Same. And I think it's because, again, this this maybe was the first big animated movie I watched growing up that I had an attachment to. And I think it's like, again, like when I was of this age, Fievel was around the same age. It was, it felt resonant. It's like an adorable, the voice is adorable. He's so cute. He sings somewhere out there because he's separated from his family. And I think I really expected to come in and like find myself back in that place. And I was kind of like, Oh, this isn't as good as, <laughs> and I feel bad because like people are gonna like listen to me, like this movie means so much to me. I I wasn't as moved this time around, but there was a like there was a lot. I think also, you know, since this came out, we've had a large macro cultural negotiation with a lot of these myths in a way that makes watching this movie as like critical adults difficult and and hard to get back into like the kids headspace that you were yeah maybe consumed it initially right again like if it were not about and i'm glad that we had this conversation i said where i had some issues about siskel and deeper's criticism and now i'm on the same page as as those criticisms thanks to dana reinforcing those criticisms but i i don't want to i i'm sorry sorry to interrupt just like I don't want to be one of those people that's like, oh, can you believe like this movie's problematic because they don't take no. you. Like, I, I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. OK, good. That'll be the headline in a few days. No, no, I don't take I don't get that sense at all. I, I just think that, again, like if it committed in one direction or another, yeah, if it yeah, committed yeah, yeah. to like general big scary, but didn't have the specifics related to it, or if it committed to the specifics and leaned into the specifics. But again, experiencing that nebulousness as an adult, it's hard to look beyond that to like be with the story. Yeah. Well said, well said. Yeah, but I don't get a sense you're throwing the baby out. It was an adorable baby that made a lot of money. No, we like the baby. Yeah, it was a sweet baby (laughs) and I'll take any, any and all Jewish representation. And then you're like, you know, and now it's been 37 years and where's where's uh, where's more aside, of course, from Fievel Goes West, which I think I did spend more time watching as a kid. Same. That's what I realized. Well, we know that Fievel's dad 
has just accepted that his son is dead. So that's nice. Fievel does have a father who, in your view, Dana Schwartz is the daddy of this movie. The daddy of this movie is Henri the Pigeon because it's, oh. I mean, he's voiced by Christopher Plummer. There's just no other option. <laughs> that's true. That's my choice. A sexy French Christopher Plummer. Yeah. That's a sexy pigeon. He's a sexy pigeon. And it's so nice that he comes back at the end. I am going to go with Tiger uh, for being Fievel's friend, despite all of the expectations that he has going against him. He's his friend. He just wants to eat Swiss cheese ice cream with him. I again, like it was one of those things where it's like I knew Dom DeLuise was coming, but we were like 20 minutes before the end of the movie. And I was like, he better show up soon. He doesn't have a lot of time. I'm delighted every time we get some Dom DeLuise in a kid's movie. And he's just Fievel needs a fucking friend. After all this, he needs a friend and he has one. Yeah. Sarah Marshall, who's your daddy in this movie? Well, first of all, I mean, I agree that you can't disagree with Christopher Plummer. And I also love that, like, part of the story here is is about making friends of all kinds and that, you know, you can't get by without them and that you're so happy to see them at the end of your journey. But I will say, I think the daddy for me is Bridget because she is but a young mouse with an idea (laughs) who really changes everything and is a catalyst for so much. And I will also say that I think Bridget and Tony are lesbians. Thank you. I love it. Perfect. (laughs) We're here for it. We're here for it. I love it. Dana Schwartz, how can our, our listeners support your work? Um, you can follow me on social media at Dana Schwartz with three Z's. The kids are on TikTok these days and I'm, I try sometimes, but mostly mm. like Instagram. I've written, uh, books, anatomy, a love story and immortality, a love story. If you're interested in like Gothic 19th century Edinburgh medical mystery love stories. I love anatomy. I haven't read the follow-up yet and I'm very excited to do so. It's on next month's list. Alex, thank you so much. I'm so excited. It's a wonderful book. So please, please everyone go listen. Go, yeah. go listen. She gives away how I consume books a lot of the time. Go listen or read. That's so <laughs> sweet. Thank you very much. And then I, I have a podcast called Noble Blood if you're interested in uh, stories from history. Awesome. Totally. Yeah. And Dana, I guess I love all your work. I got to do your book event with you recently. It, it was a dream. <laughs> it was so fun. And uh, yeah, the, it's when you're ever like, where are the sweet love stories for girls who want to cut up dead bodies? It's like, I'll tell you where. <laughs> the book for me. That's what you sometimes you just have to write it. Oh, my God. Well, thanks for doing this with us. Hopefully we'll see you soon again and hear you soon here. Oh my gosh, this was such a treat and such a delight to see your faces and a delightful excuse to talk with you. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Dana Schwartz for joining us on this episode. We appreciate you, Dana. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and editing it. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you, Fresh Lesh, for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you. Uh, you for listening to the show, for finding us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions where you can support the show and get bonus episodes in return. Thanks for finding us on Blue Sky, on Instagram, on TikTok. We're not on TikTok, I should clarify. I, Alex Steed, am on TikTok. We are not on TikTok, but I do TikTok-related stuff 
But I do show related stuff on my TikTok. Find us on Twitter for now. It's bad. And I think that's it. Next week, join us for broadcast news. And again, our bonus episode for this month is Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which is kind of an extension of our Sex in the City coverage in that it is an early Sarah Jessica Parker movie. We had a great time talking about that. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. We will talk with you all soon. Uh, And don't forget that you, my friend, you, the one who's listening to me right now, you, my friend, are good. <laughs>